that's the best announcements I've ever heard right there. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Okay, good. I can doubt on my wife, right? She's, is that the right word? Doubt? Doubt. I can doubt on my wife. I love her. She's great. Ah, oh, good morning, church. Um, I'm excited about this morning and about this message. I, I feel like it's more of a, a preachy message than a teaching message. Um, and we're going to get into uh, Ephesians chapter 6. So if you guys want to turn there and get ready for it, we can. Uh, but I want to reflect on that last song and that prayer that Kim had as well, um, talking about bringing dead things to life. Um, he brings dead things to life. He was dead, and he rose to life. Uh, we were dead in our sin, and he raised us to life, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually at times, too. Our lives may be dead, and he raises us to life. He is a life giver and a life sustainer, and if you know Jesus, which looking around the room, I know most of you personally, all of you personally, and uh, in the conversations that we've had, I can say that everybody in this room uh, knows the life-giving power of Jesus, which is good because um, looking through today's message, actually just as I'm processing, I'm not seeing any new faces in here this morning or ones that I don't recognize, which I'm kind of excited about because it's not going to be elementary this morning. We're not talking about coming to know Jesus today. We're not talking about receiving salvation um, but we're, we're talking about this process of maturity in Christ, and I feel like this may be like a level three message, right, or a level three um, intent of, of what God wants for us. I think it's taking us into uh, some of the deeper parts of, of Christianity that doesn't always get expressed from the front of the stage. Um, even when I was, I was talking with my son, and uh, I was going, I was reading my book, and he said, hey, dad, what is that book about? I've seen you reading it, and I started to explain what sit, walk, stand was, and he was like, hey, dad, uh, where do you think I am on that process? <laughs> and uh, as I explained to him, which each one of them meant, I was like, well, buddy, I mean, you've prayed to receive Jesus. You're probably in this, in between the sit and walk stage where you are walking out your Christian life as a, as a child, um, before the Lord, but you know him, you know, and you're sitting in the, all the teachings that you're getting from children's church and from mom and dad and seeing the way that we live our lives, right, and, and the things that we correct you on and tell you that, you know, you should probably work on in our prayers and our worship and all that stuff. You're learning how to walk out your life, and then when I explained what stand was to him, he was like, yeah, I don't think I'm ready for that. <laughs> Some of us might not be ready for that yet um, because it's, it's going to take us into a, a deeper place of uh, spiritual maturity that requires some strength, requires some practice, uh, practice of walking out the Christian life. So let me go ahead and start with this, um, Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to go to verses 10 through 17. Now, if, if you've been with us week over week, um, you'll notice that I did skip a small section in there from chapter 5, verse 22 to verse 610, uh, and it was talking about 
Christian living in the, the Christian household and some of the um, gender roles between men and women. Uh, I wanted to sit in that a little bit longer uh, before I preached it. <clears throat> I'm still hammering out what some of that looks like. I'm definitely not an expert in it. Um, and I wanted to give it some more time to kind of just rest before I taught on it. I didn't feel equipped to be able to teach on um, the gender roles, and especially with where we are in society and all that stuff. So I want to give it some time. I said the same thing with um, spiritual gifts and offices and uh, things that God has given you and the way that we respond to those that were talked about earlier in uh, Ephesians. It was either four or five. I think it's five. Um, So I will come back to those a little bit later. I do want to preach on those, just not yet. So it's kind of a, a here now, but not yet kind of thing. So here's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17, and I am going to continue reading from the New American Standard Bible. Um, I just like some of the wording in that a little bit better than NIV or the NRSV or um, any of the other ones that I read. So let's go ahead and read that together real fast. Actually, not real fast, kind of slow. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, (coughs) against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having belted your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. I actually had a friend in Hawaii Hawaii who would wake up in the morning, every morning, and he would read this verse, and he would physically act it out as if he were waking up to put on the armor of God. He would wake up putting on, he would like when he puts his belt on and puts his pants on, he would mimic putting on the belt of truth. He would put on his shoes, having strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. He would take up his... (coughs) his wallet or his books or whatever it is that he had and put on the shield of faith uh, to be able to extinguish all the uh, flaming arrows of the evil one. And he would take a helmet or his hat and he'd put on his hat and say, this is my helmet of salvation. And he would take his Bible and say, this is the sword, which is the word of God. And he would dress himself and clothe himself in the armor of God in preparation every day for what may be coming at him. I thought that was an awesome spiritual practice. We've been walking through this, uh, this book, and honestly, this has been, it's been so fun for me. This is the first time that I've been able to kind of take the pulpit as, as a lead pastor and preach through an entire book of the Bible. And going through it from chapter to chapter brings so many things together that I think we miss when we 
uh, hypertextualize it or, or pull out little pieces and do some eisegesis and, and read into it what we want to read into it or pull out. Like there's so many things in this book that you can pull out from it talking about faith and talking about maturity and talking about, you know, even this, this chapter on, on the armor of God and miss what is trying to be presented throughout the entire book as, as Paul is writing to the people of Ephesians. Right? And so just to recap that real fast, we started in chapter 1 establishing who we are, our identity in Christ. Right? He says, come sit at the table with me. And this is super important because this is what brings all of this together at the end. Chapters 1 through 3 is establishing who we are as believers, as brothers and sisters as adopted inheritors of the Almighty's inheritance. Some of you in, this, in, in here this morning need to be told that you are worthy because God makes you worthy. That you are chosen because God has chosen you. You have been accepted because God has called you into His purposes We come here on Sunday morning to a church setting in a church building and a meeting hall because each one of us have been called by God to sit together to talk about his purposes. Our prayers this morning as we kind of prayed together was that man's purposes would be set aside. That this this type of message, what I'm preaching to you this morning, is, is not for me and it's not for you, it's for God. This is the ministry of the Spirit, that God would receive glory through our praises in return to Him. That us gathering together is for us to gather together to glorify Him. So we're gathered together this morning to glorify Him, and we come to it from a place of sitting, that we sit in the presence of God. And we worship in the presence of God. And as he grows us and matures us, and as we uh, understand who we are in our identities, we start to walk. We walk in a way that is different from the ways of this world. We walk in a way that is glorifying to God. We have an experience uh, of, of Christian living where people can look at us from the outside world and say, you, you, there's something different about you what is that difference about you that you have that i don't or that i'm missing and we walk out our christian lives in a way that is glorifying to god all of that brings us to the ability to stand christian experience begins with with sitting it leads to walking but it doesn't end with those two Every Christian must learn also how to stand for God. I said I thought um, he's been sitting and is beginning to walk. When I explained it meant to stand, he said, yeah, I don't think I'm ready for that. Or, sorry, that was for my, my, my son Todd, right? When I said we come from this place of sitting, we learn who Jesus is, we start with, walk, or with walking, and then we stand for our faith, okay, but it's got to be done in that order, 
And one quote that I had given you guys earlier in this series, which I wanted to revisit, was when we reverse the divine order, the result is always disaster. And that all true spiritual experience begins from rest, but it doesn't end there. True rest always overflows into walking and standing. I think a lot of times, even in my own life, especially when I was a young believer, especially when I, I told you about my first experience with, with Christ sitting under the stars and having that realization that he knew me by name and he knew the hairs on my head, I wanted to immediately go out there and, and stand for Christ. I wanted to go into battle and wage war against the enemy, right? I was fired up. I, the first thing I wanted to do was go to, to, to Nepal and, and carry the gospel into the Himalayas. I was like, let's go, I'm ready. Fortunately for me, God said, no, hold on, just wait. you got a little bit more learning to do, right? I wanted to pick up my sword and go fight. He said, hold on, slow down. You need to sit a little bit longer. You need to learn how to walk out your life a little bit longer. Just wait, just wait, pause. Eventually, I got there to, I mean, I got to go to India, and I got to go into the Himalayas, and I got to carry Christ into, you know, remote parts of the world, and I still hope to do more of that. But it took a little bit of growth first and maturing before I got to that order. I wanted to ask real quick, um, since we all know each other in here, does anybody have uh, the gift of being able to see into the spiritual realm? Can anybody see spirits or demons? No? You have before at, at times? You have before at times? Okay. Because I want to get into um, this, this concept or this reality of, of talking about um, the spiritual realm. All right. There are four quadrants of reality. Uh, there is what we see, okay, that is real. When I look around the room, I can see everybody in this room, I could come around and I could put my hands on you and I could touch and I can feel and I can smell and I can hear and I can taste and I can see reality, right? There is the seen reality. At the same time, we have some seen not real things like movies, the fiction, the computer-generated graphics, the superheroes, the villains, the explosions of the worlds, you know, like space travel and all that stuff. Not quite real yet or ever, uh, who knows, but that is, you can see it on movie screens, but it's not real. It's fiction, right? We also have things that are unseen that are real. Things that we believe. The heavenlies. Heaven. Jesus. We don't see him, but we know that he's real. The wind. It's one of my favorite examples. Can't see it, but we know that it's real. Okay? It's not seen, but it's real. And the last is an unseen but not real. Sometimes we have a great imagination. We can't see it. We might be able to see it in our brain, or we have dreams that might not be real, but we've imagined them. Where I want to kind of land or talk about today is right here in the unseen real world. In the unseen real world. In recapping our discussion on Ephesus, we talked about this culture 
that has been developed in the city of Ephesus. And every time I read this, I kind of picture Paul sitting in his prison cell, writing and worshiping and experiencing an onslaught of attack in the unseen real world. Right? Well, I talked to you about Artemis. Artemis being one of the, the chief gods of this goddesses of this area. She was known to have unlimited power. People would fall at her feet and worship her, even though she was an image uh, carved of, of stone. She wasn't real, but they believed in this unseen power where she was in control of all the heavenlies. The angels and the demons fell subject to her power. It was said that the, the, de- the demonic presence in this area was so thick that you couldn't put a pin through it. Right? And I believe if you've been able to see into the spiritual realm or if you've talked to people that can see into the spiritual realm, because I do believe that's a gift and it's not for everybody, that some people can actually see angels and demons that exist here in the world that we live in, that we never see but we might experience. And there's this oppression that's in this city because of the demonic presence that is laid over this entire city. And Paul says that this is what we come against, that uh, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. I've experienced it a couple times in, in my life. I've seen them, I've experienced them, interacted with them. One of them, I, I asked my wife if I could share this story, but I remember, <clears throat> and I, it's, it wasn't completely just spiritual forces, but if you've talked to her and you've heard her story, you know that she struggled with some, some of the uh, mental illness things. And one of the times when she was not doing well, she would have often panic attacks. She'd have a hard time breathing. I remember getting a phone call one time when I was at work. She couldn't breathe. I knew she's having a panic attack. I need you to come. I need you to come home, right? I need you to come. I need you to come home. And I didn't know what was going on, but instantly I got in my car. And I drove home as fast as I could. I got there in about ten minutes. When I got home, my my wife was laid out on the ground, gasping for air. I remember coming over to her and just saying, in the name of Jesus, leave. And she goes, <gasps> it takes a big breath. In my opinion, what was happening and what I felt like what was going on was there was a spiritual oppressor and attacker on Haley trying to torment her. And what she needed was someone to come in and declare in the name of Jesus, leave. There's power in the name of Jesus. What we are fighting against is not flesh and blood, people. It's powers of this dark world. It's powers of the prince of this world who is Satan. I don't say this to scare you, church, but I say this to bring reality to your life. I've noticed that when my life is closer when I'm walking closer with the Lord and I am and I'm being obedient to his calling to different things 
the enemy tends to attack more. Almost every time I go on a missions trip somewhere to carry the gospel to people, you know where he attacks me? Right here. He says, I'm going to attack you where I know you're most vulnerable. I'm going to attack your family. He doesn't fight fair. He's dirty. He's mean. He's cruel. And he wants to, he wants to distract you from the purposes that God is calling you to. If he can get your mind off of God and the obedience to what God is calling you to, he wins the battle. It doesn't even, he doesn't even have to like destroy you. He just has to turn your direction so that you're not fulfilling the purposes of God. I wanted to look at the, the word here um, in verse 11. It's in Greek, it's stine pros. Okay? It's the Greek word for stand. Sorry, I got congestion going on here. With its following preposition, against. Stand against. It means hold your ground. Oh, thank you. I am going to take a sip of water real quick. means hold your ground. Hold your ground against the enemy. Okay? <clears throat> In Ephesus, it was perceived that Artemis had control of people's lives, people's finances, and people's time. People would go to the temple to worship Artemis. They would put their time, they would put their obedience, they would put their effort towards Artemis to appease their God. The good thing about Paul is he's reminding us here that he already occupies all of the heavens, heavenlies. He is in control of the ground that is already ours. And so as in Christ, we are conquerors. Actually, in Romans chapter 8.37, he says, no, actually you are more than conquerors. This armor that he is giving us, the, the helmet, the, the belt, the, the feet, uh, the shield, and the sword, uh, you guys have probably heard this before, they're all defensive pieces of armor, except for the sword. The sword can be used as both, defense and offense. He's giving us defensive armor because if you think about it, Christ has already won. Christ has already won. And the armor that he's causing us or telling us to put on is not go charge and take on the world. It's stand firm in Christ, knowing that he's already taken on the world and he's already victorious. So stand firm in your faith, knowing chapters 1 through 3 and 4 through 5 that you are a child of God and you're walking out your Christian life, therefore stand firm in your faith, knowing who you are in Christ. Only those who sit can stand. Our power for standing, as for walking, lies in our first, having first been made to sit together with Christ. Us sitting together is our strength. The Christians walk in warfare alike derive their strength from this position. If he's not sitting before God, he cannot hope to stand before the enemy. 
pulling some quotes from, from Watchman Nee here. He says, Satan's primary object is not to get us to sin, but simply to make it easy for us to do so by getting us off the ground of perfect triumph onto which the Lord has brought us because victory is his. Therefore, it is ours. Let me say it again. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. I wanted to define um, when Jesus will come. Okay, There's four essentials, essential features to a work which God will commit. Okay, Now, this comes from, like, if I'm proclaiming in the name of Jesus, go, right? I don't know if you guys have ever seen a signet ring. Have you guys ever heard of a signet ring? Signet ring is basically a, a, a stamp, like your kings or people who used to write letters. They would have their symbol placed on a ring. And when they stamped an official article or official piece of paper, they would put wax on that ring and press that ring into the paper to say, this has my stamp on it. This is a stamp of approval. Okay, Jesus promises us that he will come when we call on his name. But I believe there's four things that really define when Jesus will show up and his promise will always be true. Okay? The first one, the first need we ha- need to have, if we're going to tap into the spiritual power of God, the spiritual authority of God, which this is my hope for us. I, I preach and I teach this stuff because I want us to walk in the authority of Christ. I don't want us to live out a peaceful, calm, precious so sensitive, so sweet, so kind, never have any kind of uh, excitement, adventure kind of life. I don't want that. I want you guys to walk in power, authority, adventure, excitement. I want you to go into like unseen places. Like even for my kids, I'm like, oh, there's a cave. I get nervous in my human flesh of like, hey, uh, maybe it's dangerous down there. Like maybe don't do that. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, but what's inside? If you don't ever go explore and go into these places, you, you never get to unveil the mystery of God. I believe that's the mystery he's talking about earlier in this book. He's saying, unveiling the mystery of God. This is the excitement of following Jesus. This is not step one, step two. This is step three. Okay? This is step three. And he's going to show up every time if it's a true revelation of our hearts of the eternal purpose of God. It's got to start from God. Too often we try to think on our own of, well, what can we do to make this church better? What can we do to uh, bring the gospel to the unknown parts of the world? Even things that are good, if it doesn't start with the eternal purpose of God, God may or may not show up. It's got to originate from Him. If it's originating from Him, I can guarantee you He will be there. It's a promise. God's promises are always true. Secondly, all work that is going to be effective in the divine purpose must be conceived by God. So, in this process of walking in a spiritual authority, we need to sit longer asking God for what your purposes are. This is sort of the, the prayer time. 
God, what is your purpose? What are you calling us to do? Where are you moving us? And as that grows, as he breathes that within you, he conceives that. And when that is conceived, God will be there. Thirdly, all work to be effective must depend for its continuance upon the power of God alone. If it's going to continue on, we're going to continue doing the work of God, it's got to be dependent on His power. I think a lot of times we place people into positions because they're good at certain things. We've done this in the church over and over and over again. We've said, hey, you're good at organizing tasks. Let's put you in charge of this task so that you can get it done. Hey, you're, you're good at being fun. Why don't you be the fun youth pastor? Right? Hey, you're a, an awesome leader, an organizational leader. Why don't you spearhead our church and be our pastor? Without any pre-thought into, is this the calling of God? Or, or it's done on human terms and, and saying, we recognize these carnal gifts that you have. That even without God, they could do it. They can run the organization. They can do the events. They can have fun and they can be seen as super successful. But where's God? Where's God? If God is not the power that is sustaining the ministry or the work that you are engaged in, stop. Don't do it anymore. It's for carnal gain. Finally, the object of all work to which God can commit himself must be his glory, which means we get nothing out of it for ourselves. It's not about us, like I said. We're not trying to get more famous or more popular more rich, have more building, have more space, have more people, have more, have more, have more, have more. It's not about us. It's not about us. It's all about Him. When I think about our church as we enter into a time of discovering what our mission and our vision and we start having these discussions, it's a process that we're going to be walking through for about a year. All I ask is that we would seek God. that we would seek him for purpose, seek him for deliverance, that he would conceive this vision for us, that he would conceive the purposes of our church, that we would be able to say, this is who we are because we've sought God. We know him, we know who we are, and this is who we want to be. And it won't be possible if God doesn't carry us through it. If he is not the strength on which we stand, I don't want to be up here. If he is not the reason why we are doing all the things that we are doing, I don't want to be a part of it. And if he is not receiving the glory, I will go on a mountaintop and worship him wherever he is to be glorified. 
we're in a critical point in the life of our church where we're going to be seeking this direction for the next year. I wanted to share a story from the book, from Watchman Nee's book, about a time where he went uh, on a little missions trip. He, um, it was the, the new year in China from January 1st to the 15th. They get like 15 days off. And he was going to be a part of this, this uh, retreat thing, but he decided not to, but he, to go to this fishing village instead. And he goes to this fishing village where they worship the god of Tehuang. I think I'm saying, is that, am I saying that right? Tehuang means king of the fish or something like that. Okay? And they have this festival every year, and they believe that Tehuang would give them the day on which they are to celebrate. And he challenged, uh, Watchman Nee and seven other guys on this mission trip came up and challenged them and said, why do you worship this Tawong? Let me tell you about Jesus. And they said, whoa, 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 we have no reason to follow Jesus. We have Tawong. And they said, well, how do you... How do you know that Tawang is real? And they said, for 286 years, we have been worshiping Tawang. And every year, he tells us exactly when to have the festival. And on that day, there is no rain. And they heard in the back of his head, where is the God of Elijah? And he said, on the 11th, the day that Tawang has said that there will be no rain, there will be rain. This is four days prior to the festival. And they said, oh, we know, we know this, you know, astronomers, we know the weather, we know all this stuff, and Tawang has given us this day uh, for sure, surely, there will be no rain that day. So if, if rain comes on that day, we will follow your God. And they said, surely, it will rain on the 11th. And they waited four days until the 11th came. And, and this is where I had a hard time with this story because in my mind I started thinking like, it says don't put the Lord your God to your test. Right? Don't test God. What if it does rain? Then these people will never follow Jesus. They will say, oh, well Jesus said that it was going to rain, but it's not going to rain. Right? If it didn't rain, these guys' salvation, their hopes in Christ are gone. In my carnal spirit, I'm listening to the story that he's writing, and I'm going, man, what are you doing? What are you doing? There's, there's uh, the possibilities. My carnal mind is saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't, don't put God to the test. Watchman Nee, being a man of faith, knew, first of all, that this was a true revelation of their hearts, that God had placed this on their hearts he knew that it was going to be conceived by God and that it could only happen if God showed up and if it did, God would receive the glory. It's a huge step of faith. Thousands and thousands of people in this vi village have their faith placed in Tawang. They woke up on the morning of the 11th. They prayed and they ate breakfast no rain. Came to 10 o'clock in the morning and it started pouring. It said buckets full of water 
started pouring. So much so that their, their statue erected to, to Wong in the middle of their city fell over and his head fell off. And the guys in the city came ran, running to the statue and they tried lifting it up and they tried replacing the head and they would fall over and they would fall down and one would break his arm and the other would slip and, and it hurt his leg and, and they couldn't get the statue re-erected. Yet the people still said, oh, it wasn't the 11th, it was supposed to be the 14th. <laughs> Laughable, right? So they said, okay, it'll rain on the 14th. And it did. And thousands and thousands of people came to know Jesus. I want visions like that. In faith like that, where we're saying, I want to go in this direction that might be completely absurd for mankind. In my, carnal, in my carnality, I'm going to say, that's stupid. Don't test God. But I want to be in a place so much so where I'm sitting in the presence of God and my life is walking towards Jesus that when he calls me to stand firm in my faith, I'm able to say, that's God. That's his voice. That's where I need to go. That's what he wants me to do so that he can be glorified. Can we pray? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the book of Ephesians. I thank you for the reassurances that we are called called to be sons and daughters of the living God, to sit at the table, to commune with you, to worship you as, as a church. And we know that in the church, our strength is as we gather together to praise you, that our prayers for you turn into worship, that we are not fighting for victory, but we are fighting from victory to proclaim the name of Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that as we wake in the morning every single day and put on the armor of God, that we would be reminded of your victory God, I want to pray a specific prayer for each one of us in this room that this week you would give us dreams, that you would give us visions, that we would hear your still small voice in our times of prayer that lead us into directions that we wouldn't go unless we knew it was from you. So God, I pray that we would have confidence in knowing and hearing the still small voice of God, that those would dictate and direct our lives and the choices that we make and the places that we go so that you might be glorified, God, not for any of our human gain, but strictly for your glory, God. It's all for your glory. God, give us dreams 
Give us visions. Let us hear your voice. Let us see your face as we seek you. We pray this in your name. Amen.